Dotnet Rocks episode 896, with guests Joe Kemmerly and Alex Papadimoulos. Recorded live Friday, July 26th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by Franklins.net, makers of GesturePack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePak.com. And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app, available now for Windows Phone, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to Donnie Rocks. Carl and Richard, uh, we're here. We're all here. Good. How are you? What's up, my friend? <laughs> what do we call that? The hand solo intro? Is that what that is? Yeah. What's up? Oh, you know, I'm. it's been like a month of steady sunshine in Vancouver, and at that point, Vancouverites start to get a little weird, because, you know, we're not LA. That is strange. Are the, is, are the, you know, is like grass five feet high because of the sun? Or? No, no. It's, it's brown. No, it's brown, huh? Yeah. Not enough water. Not enough water. We're oh. not used to it. We're good at rain. We've had some weird weather here, too, but, you know, that's not what people want to listen to. They want Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? What I got. More hipper than what I got. More hipper than what you got. Yeah, there you no, go. Uh, a multi app using storage tables, queues, and blobs tutorial in Windows Azure. Oh. Yes. If you go to tinyurl.com slash Azure Tutorial, which I can't believe that keyword was not taken already. Yeah, because that's so that's such a good one. Yep. So this tutorial series shows how to create a multi-tier ASP.NET MVC4 web app that uses Windows Azure storage tables, queues, and blobs, and how to deploy the application to a Windows Azure cloud service. The tutorials assume you have no prior experience using Windows Azure. On completing the series, you'll know how to build a resilient and scalable data-driven web app and deploy it to the cloud. So in particular, he says, you will learn how to enable your machine for Windows Azure development by installing the SDK, how to create a Visual Studio Cloud project with an MVC4 web role and two worker roles, how to publish the cloud project to a Windows Azure cloud service, how to publish the MVC4 project to a Windows Azure website, if you prefer, and still use the worker roles in a cloud service, how to use the Windows Azure queue storage service for communication between tiers or between worker roles, Right. how to use the Windows Azure table storage service as a highly scalable data store for structured non-relational data, how to use the Windows Azure blob service to store files in the cloud, how to view and edit Windows Azure tables, queues, and blobs by using Visual Studio or Azure Storage Explorer. How to use SendGrid to send emails. How to configure tracing and view trace data. And how to scale an app by increasing the number of worker role instances. How cool is that? Wow, that's pretty awesome. And that's free. Hi, hard to argue with that, huh? Hard to argue with free. The, you know what this would tie in nicely to is the, the uh, uh, Windows Azure MSDN activation sweepstakes. This is something I could do with my MSDN account. And you might win an Aston Martin. Which is a nice little perk, isn't it? <laughs> Tell us about that. So if you're already an MSDN subscriber, you're getting an Azure credit every month. It depends on the level of subscription you've got. If you've got an MSDN Ultimate, I think it's $150 a month. So that credit can go against any Azure stuff you want to do. You want to build a uh, Azure website to t- stand up a personal website. You want to check out this cool multi-tiered application that Carl's found and actually take it out for a spin, you can do it. All you've got to do is activate your Azure benefit, and you can do that by going to aka.ms slash Azure Rocks and uh, put in your MSDN credentials, and that turns that account on. And if you do that before September 30th, you're automatically entered into the sweepstakes to win a 2013 Aston Martin V8 Vantage sports car. No, very not cool. a model, not remote control, the actual car. Hey, that would be very cool bombing around in the United States, wouldn't it? <laughs> not subtle. And uh, n- one of the things they've changed, it used to be when you activated your Azure Benefit, they would ask for a credit card. Even though it didn't put any charges on it, you had to have that. But that's not there anymore. Right. You don't need to put in a credit card to activate it. If you use up all your credit, it just turns the services off. So if you're a high school student and you want to play with Azure, just go right ahead and do it. 
Sure. If you've got an MSDN account, of course. Yeah, of course. So or your dad I, might. I kind of think that most folks might. listening to this have got an MSDN account. So you should be taking advantage of this. And I think, Carl, you just handed us an awesome thing to do. Absolutely. Don't have to stand up your own. If you don't want to stand up your own site, you don't want to. You don't want to do testing, but just to experiment with this app. Yep. And it exercises so many pieces, a website, queues, table storage, blob service. Like, that's really cool, man. Yeah. Nice one. Great find. Yeah. And it's a, an email list service. So in the end, you can use it to spam all your friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're always finding the shiny bits in every app, aren't you? You're amazing. Yeah. All right, Richard, who's talking to us? Hey, I grabbed a comment off of show 883, and that's the one we did with Jez Humble on continuous delivery. Love it. Back at NDC. Great conversation. Yep. And this comment is from Rob Heckhart, who says, uh, if you're only supposed to work in trunk, then why did developers put branching in all the major version control systems out there? Dope. Brilliant developers like Linus Torvalds baked this into their product. Was he on drugs when he developed that part of Git? You'll have to ask him. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a separate question, we actually. And I should point that. out, Jez actually answered this question, too. So let me read that piece as well. Uh, I used Git tied to SVN at work, and all I have to do is rebase the master trunk, then go into my branch and rebase against the master again. If I do that on a regular basis, I'm at one with the universe, and merges aren't usually painful at all. Yeah. My colleagues that only use SVN end up in this nightmare scenario where they have tons of changes in their commit cues one missed uncheck and here comes some fun mm. your point is taken about developing back-end services and such in trunk but even then there are times when we have to mess with legacy code to adapt it for our new work and of course we're a week out from release do we really mess with that class and let it go out or tear things apart in a branch knowing that the good tested legacy class goes out with the release and then push the new class into trunk when there's enough time to test it in a perfect world with perfectly constructed code, working in trunk would make total sense. Unfortunately, as Jez has pointed out, a lot of us work in semi-screwball environments with not such great coding practices and little or no tests. In those situations, I'd much rather have work done in branches and, heck, even tested thoroughly in that branch, spooling up an environment with Chef or Puppet or any of those tools, and then push it to trunk when it's all good. Now, Jez's response, because I've got my own response, but let me give you part of Jez's response, too. Jez said, there's no problem with branching. The problem is with merging. Right. Branching for release branches and for experimentation is fine. The problem is branching for features because you've got to merge those things back in. The pain of merging scales non-linearly with the number of people and the length of time that you go between merges. Right. And I think that's a great thing. I, I like that we're now using systems, and I'm looking at you, Git, more than any other, that punishes people who branch for a long time. Branching, get back to trunk routinely. Your merges are less painful. So it's, it supports a healthy behavior and punishes an unhealthy behavior. Yeah. And Jezgo, but Jez goes on to say, to make sure the code is actually working, it's not good enough to run tests in the branch. You have to make sure the combination of the branches that will eventually be released is tested and works. Quote, tested on my branch in this situation is like, quote, works on my machine, <laughs> which is more or less useless. Right. If everybody merges at least once a day and you say you're doing it on a fairly regular basis, that's great because you're doing continuous integration. In which case, you and I have no beef. If you have one branch in play to deal with some gnarly legacy issue, that's also fine. And I've also seen branches where yeah, we're doing experimentation. We're trying a re-architect, like something risky, where one of the logical outcomes of the branch is throwing it away. Hmm. And I think this is really what Jez is saying. It's like, when you know you're always going to merge, merge early and often. And it's his final point is, the problem comes when several people are working on long-lived feature branches, which is still very common. Then you end up with integration hell that doesn't scale. Right. Hmm. So there you go. And uh, a great conversation about continuous integration. I think it'll tie nicely into the conversation we're having today as well. It's like all DevOps all the time these days, isn't it? Right. So uh, back to Rob. Rob, thank you so much for your comment. I hope Jez answered it well. I certainly support both your viewpoint and his, the sense of, yep, we need to branch once in a while. Just don't branch often and don't stay out there longer than you have to. 
work as close to trunk as you can. I think we've had this conversation a few times already, but I bet you will address it again. This idea that integrating first, that we can start building bits that may not be visible in the app yet, but represent some integration stages so that when we finally do need to build the visible pieces, we're already confident with the back end. The longer that branch stays out, the harder your life is. So thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows 8, WinPhone 7 and 8, iOS and Android. And those great apps were built by Diatom Enterprises who'd love to build you a mobile app too. I love how you do that in reverse order of popularity of platform. <laughs> I keep switching it up. I do something different every time. You know, some days I want to leave with Android. Sometimes I'll leave with WinPhone. You know, yeah. just why well, give it the same list every time? Well, oh. you know, that lest we come into uh, criticism about the order in which we say things, right? Because it really doesn't matter. No. It's a list. It's a list. Right? Not a sorted list. All right. Well, before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by industry experts. They release now about 30 to 40 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. Wide range of topics, iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Lots of cloud stuff. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce our two guests, Joe Kemmerly and Alex Papadimoulis. Uh, Joe is a developer and speaker in the Cleveland, Ohio area, specializing in .NET development, security, database, and application lifecycle topics. Joe has experience in a variety of systems, ranging from internal enterprise apps to trading floor systems, as well as multiple commercial software products. Joe's active in the technical community as well as a speaker at local, regional, and national events. He's on the board of the Cleveland.NET Developers Group and is working to return a day of .NET event to the Northeast Ohio area. Yeah. Uh, Alex Papademoulis is a speaker and writer who's passionate about looking beyond the code to build great software. In addition to founding Inido, the makers of Buildmaster, the popular DevOps platform, Alex also started the Daily WTF a fun site dedicated to building software the wrong way. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Uh, Pleasure to be on. And before the show, I had a chance to go out and browse the daily WTF, and that's some good stuff. Oh, thank you. It's it's been boy. It's it's coming on its ten year anniversary, believe it or not, and it is been a blast to maintain for for all of these years. Though lately, uh, Mark Boyts, who has has been sort of taking up the editor role and has been doing a fantastic job of of keeping the site running. I love the story about the Y two K at the nuclear power plant, uh, the circle of fail. <laughs> That's pretty good stuff. It's it's incredible. I mean, I I think that these are. I used to think the stories were made up, and you know, how could they be real? But uh, as I got more industry experience and kept kept seeing more stories of the same thing happening over, it was like, holy crap! This yeah. this stuff happens. It's more like people dumber than me, but all in uh, programming. It's pretty cool. Well, not just happens, but keeps happening, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. I love your site also. Uh, the question I've got for you then is the Delta. Are we actually getting better? You know, um, there is a Delta. I don't think it's getting better though. As- <laughs> We're going the wrong way. <laughs> well, you know, as, as technology is expanding so much and, and it's becoming more accessible and easier to do things, we're finding, I mean, uh, you, you know, you may have heard of the job shortage in, yeah, in IT. Job shortage? Never heard of it. Yeah, no. like how it's hard to find. I mean, so you can imagine what that creates a race to, right? I, Just I- getting. I know where there's a lot of YouTube browsers and people that play video games. Do you have any need for those skills? Because there's a lot of people that are very good at that. So if they can just get good at answering a few programming questions on a programming test at a job interview, they're going to get hired. And right. they're the ones who are making all this wonderful software. Yeah. Yeah, we scary. still don't have a good way to really evaluate people to really say this guy has that skill there's no real certification out there that said that actually will result if you if that's all you know about that person that person is competent 
Yeah. Mm. The the a um a colleague of mine had tried you know in the Cleveland area had tried to find developers for his team and you know you've heard of the fizzbuzz test right where oh, yeah. you're mod this mod three mod f- oh no I'm sorry that's giving away how to do it uh, where you're just putting fizz or buzz if it's three or five um, that's a drinking game know. isn't it. You know, <laughs> I, I, that would be an awesome programming drinking game. How many drinks until you can't code fizzbuzz in this language? <laughs> you do it around in a circle and whoever misses it, you know, drinks, right? I would totally do that. Yeah. But he could not find, uh, they had to lower their programming standards because they could not find developers who could pass the fizzbuzz test. Oh, and it man. was absolutely incredible but that's the reality i mean that's who's out there and you know when you need to hire 10 people you gotta hire people who can't pass the fizzbuzz test i you know i just i think you got to think the other way which is if i add bad people i'm actually slowing everybody else down like now you're adding negative Mm -hmm. people his his idea was if he could get one developer to take up maybe one hour of his day Right. Just solve. It'll take him eight hours to solve something he could do in one hour. Yeah. That was a win. And that's I mean, that goes back to the what the uh, 10 to one for the great programmer. Um, um, what was that? The mythical man month. Right. Of yep. 10, 10 times um, skill multiplier. It can also speak to the vast gains in productivity that even a poor developer can get over manual systems. Well, yeah, I mean, we've, we've always had this ROI return, right? Like, I, I, the, one of the lines I use when I'm doing talks, and especially in the DevOps space, is like, look, your director of sales, if he improves sales for the year by 10%, he is a hero, right? He goes to Bermuda on the company's dime. They give him medals in a parking space. But we routinely build software that provides a tenfold improvement in performance. And... Uh, rarely are we recognized the same level. And I think part of it is that we don't actually, you know, take on the challenge in advance, admit or measure the goal in the first place to say, because that's the kind of return good software can give. Well, and we as developers have a tendency to want to ignore the business side and not know what's giving us that paycheck. Right. Yeah. How many, how many developers have you talked to that don't actually know how the, their company makes money? Yeah. We don't like to solve business problems that th- those are boring and we would rather solve technical problems. And, <laughs> you, you know, I think that's what this this whole agile movement was, you know, was and is currently really striving for agile DevOps. It's it's a tight relation, but bringing software developers closer to understanding what the heck it is they do all day. Yeah. And why that matters. I think the more we understand the value we bring to an organization, certainly the more power we have. But I think also the, the resources you're going to put to it are going to change too. Well, I had a one guy tell his boss, you know, he wanted to get a raise, the developer. And he said, and here's why, because I'm actually providing the value of two or three developers because I'm automating so much of what I do. I'm so much more productive than the other guys. And, you know, I have my, you know, seasoned and I have my stuff down, uh, you know, and he actually got a raise. I'm not sure how much he got, but that was his pitch. He's like, look, you're, you're basically, when you hire me, you're, you're paying for two or three developers. Mm-hmm. I've successfully argued the same thing at annual review time of making sure that I knew actual hard numbers of my effect at the company. And it, it, it's really useful because managers have budgets they understand revenue minus cost equals profit and if you're increasing revenue or lowering cost usually your amount of salary is significantly less than the extra profit you can generate and if you have the hard numbers it's almost a no-brainer for them to take that and argue it back to the bean counters yeah, you're just talking basic responsibility here that, you know, take charge of what your impact is and what you're responsible for, and you'll probably get rewarded for it. And if you aren't, there are other companies that will. Yep. There is just job shortage I've heard of. <laughs> <laughs> there are many more problems than we have time for. 
So that brings us to the topic, which is automating deployment, uh, you know, a way to stay productive, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is, this is an area that's starting to get lots and lots of attention. I mean, you said DevOps is, is what just now all the time happening. And I, and I think it's, I used to think it was just some silly buzzword that, that was being thrown around, but it's, it's something I'm seeing is starting to become part of the mindset that about 10 years ago or so, we used to think agile was this hipster fad thing that, that people were doing. Um, but you know, agile worked and agile, you know, what I think is going to be happening over the next, uh, 10 years. I mean, let's look at 10 years back with, with agile. It was a shift in thinking that was crazy at the time, but nowadays, I'll say almost all teams are agile. I was hearing a story about how, was it the U.S. Air Force was using Scrum to develop some of the software in their fighter pilots. If the U.S. military is using agile development techniques, I think we can say it's gone mainstream. Yeah. That's that's good to know. DevOps, though, is this sort of final connection. You know, I, I like to say if Agile is about getting smaller changes sooner, DevOps is the sooner of that. It's how we can get changes from source control and move it all the way through production. The part that I think is important to focus on as we're learning as an industry and as we're experiencing this is to look at it from a responsible standpoint. It's Really easy to look at it in a, you know, let's take our source code and immediately deploy it to production. No testing, no nothing. That's not going to be compatible with what a lot of organizations are really striving for when they want to build repeatable good software. Is this the same effect we saw with Agile too, where people's interpretation of Agile was, I no longer have to, uh, to make any plans, you know, just no more documentation, no more requirements gathering, just code. No more architecture. (laughs) (laughs) No more coding. (laughs) That's a great analogy because that's, that's exactly what it was. And when Agile was coming out, you'd have some of the people who were really on the edge. You said, let's just do, do whatever. We don't need to spec anything. Let's have disposable diagrams. Let's just code first, ask questions later. Now with, with, DevOps becoming a thing, it's the same when you take things and just jump right into production without all those checkpoints and process points. It's it's about the same as just coding first and asking questions later. Yeah. And so just because the technique doesn't mean you can't screw it up. And it's good to know that I was actually ahead of the curve on something, Alex. Um, Ten or more years ago, I made sure to have regular weekly lunches with the operation guys and the DBAs and work closely with them to figure out what exactly they were putting my code onto. And, and you know, that's, that's a good point. I think it's, it's interesting that that's so, so DevOps, right? It's dev plus ops. I mean, that's where the, the word obviously comes from, but that's really what we preached pretty hardcore with agile was was let's get the customer or the stakeholders or whomever a lot closer to the software organization all the while we had all these huge silos inside of our organizations the devs folks were on different floors than the ops folks and you know as you said joe you had to go out of your way to have lunch with them this there wasn't a integration there wasn't a you didn't know what the other team was doing. And I think that's causes delivery problems when the different people involved in the delivery process have no idea what the other teams are doing. Moreover, they can just throw things over the wall and say, well, it worked on my machine or actually I really liked, uh, who, who was that? Was that Jez who said it worked on my branch? I thought yeah, that was a yeah. pretty good way of uh, putting that. <laughs> just, just <laughs> another version of worked on in my machine. Sure. I have a friend who uh, who's been working with lots of outsourced developers in, in different countries. He says, "I know how to say it works on my machine in sixteen languages now." <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those universal things. It, yeah, repeatability uh, is so interesting. But I mean, automated yeah. deployment sounds terrifying. It is, especially to an IT pro who sees the demos of, look, I can hit this button from Visual Studio and push my code out onto a production server. Mm. 
that that I think is yeah. What could one go of the more wrong? Terrifying demos, exactly. But, but even before we didn't have automated deployment, we had developers that would go into a production server and hand edit HTML and Notepad, <laughs> and then you know break things there. Right. That's so. called the develop mistuction environment. It's a <laughs> sort of amalgamation of all of the different environments between source control and production, just in one file system. Hmm. <laughs> Terrifying. <laughs> yeah. So how am I going to calm this IT guy down? What is it that makes him confident? Beer. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> pizza. Didn't you say pizza is the universal lubricant, Richard? That's it. Yeah. Um, actually... You know, the main tenant of DevOps communication and sharing from my own experience, having watched Carl do the 64 bit question before mm. with his infrastructure ogres. <laughs> hey, we, pr- we agreed not to talk about that. <laughs> it's about the only time you'll ever get Carl to do interpretive dance. <laughs> no comment. Right. Yeah, but I have I have a metaphor for that. The the infrastructure guys may look like Carl doing his infrastructure ogre routine. Don't forget the developer fairies. I was omitting <laughs> that for your own uh, protection, Carl. Nice. But if you're going to bring it up, well, you know, Sahil Malik did coin though that uh, that adversarial relationship, and he actually mm-hmm. just said that when we were recording the show, and I think we had to shut we down to the stop. recording because <laughs> we were peeing ourselves. It was so funny. Yeah, I do. I did come up with the metaphor though that uh, the infrastructure guys may look like ogres, but if you sit down, you talk to them, you get to know them. Uh, the ogre that they're like is Shrek. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of big and stupid is what you're saying. <laughs> no, big and scary looking, but they actually have a heart. Okay, they want the company to su- succeed just as well as you do. They want your code to run because it's that's their job too, and they. They take pride in their work just as much as a developer does in having a s- smoothly operating company. And they don't all sound like Mike Myers. <laughs> nice. <laughs> what I think it comes down to is the, the, the goal of our different departments. So the ops folks are all about stability. They need to make sure the systems are running and don't go down and are operative and work smoothly. Our job as developers, though, is to constantly be changing and improving things. And when we understand each other's goals on how we can work together to have changing stability, which sounds a bit like an oxymoron, nice. but it, that's, that's sort of where this DevOps intersection really, really hits. Yeah, well, you know, they, I've been the IT guy. The line is, change is good, you go first. Because <laughs> I'm measured on stability, right? I'm measured on uptime. I'm not measured on shipping new features, really. I think part of this is getting that paradigm shift of if you don't let new features ship, like you've got to also be measured on the app keeps improving. Uh-huh. And if we as developers can communicate to the IT guy, here's what I'm doing, here's what's going to change, here's the benefit from it, as opposed to Here's some code and a badly written text file for how to put it in production. Go do it. Yeah. Just stop talking. And, just do this. Right. And, and building a trust and actually figuring things out, like actually going in as a developer, looking at the network diagram, seeing what's out there. And I think this was uh, you and Steven Murawski on Run As Radio were talking about this the other week, you know, sitting down with the operations group and having them show you, here's all the moving pieces on the, the developer's visio diagram between the user and the web server. Right. Because it's not just a straight line. Yeah. If you consolidate everything between the internet and the web server as a line, that's that whole guy's job. Mm. You wonder why he's angry. <laughs> All that stuff in there. Oh, yeah. that's it's, you. Oh. It's important. <laughs> oh, sorry. Hey, Richard, <laughs> you know what time it is? Oh, it must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time for me to remove all the talking donkeys from the latest build. Jeez. Shrek references. All right. Uh, No, it's time to announce the winner of a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection for one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Awesome. But before I do that, let me tell you about Telerik's recent release of DevCraft for Q2 2013. 
the 10 new controls and over 250 new features across all six of their UI control suites allow you to cover more scenarios right out of the box. Tile list for Ajax, calendar, data storage, touch, and more for Windows 8, as well as offline cloud data synchronization for Windows Phone and Cloud Emboss are just a few of the major new things. That's mobile backend as a service. Nice. The newly introduced graph interactivity support in Telerik Reporting helps you create even more interactive reports. Just Code's new integration with Just Decompile allows you to debug third-party libraries without having the source code available. Check it out at Telerik.com. Don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Absolutely. So, who's our winner today? Today's winner of the DevCraft Complete Collection is Alan Milne. Huh, congratulations, Alan. Golf clap for you, sir. Assuming that he answers his email. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and you never did get your clappers back, huh? No, I didn't. I know where they are, though. But, uh, you know, this happens a lot. We give away uh, $2,000 worth of software, everything Telerik does in the DevCraft Complete. And uh, they people don't answer their email, so they don't unfortunately get it. That's not good. Yeah. Answer your email, folks. It's important to sign up to the fan club with your accurate email address. Uh, also, we're going to give away uh, Franklin Brothers CD, Lifeboat to Nowhere. Nice. The award-winning Franklin Brothers CD. It's a really good stuff. If you like classic rock, Steely Dan, Eagles, all that kind of stuff, you'll like it. The winner is Charles J. Knight. Congratulations, Charles. We'll be sending that CD stuff to you. on its way to you. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, join the fan club. We have thousands of members. We give away stuff in every show. Every December, we're giving away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member. It's so easy. I don't know why you're not doing it. And uh, we like to ask our guests, if you had $5,000, Alex and Joe, to spend on technology, what would you buy? Alex? Oh, I'd have to go with hardware. Um, something fancy. I haven't gotten a new laptop in uh, at least uh, at least a year and a half now. Ah, five grand on a laptop's not that easy these days. No, it's not. <laughs> they, you pretty much have to go for uh, the, it, typically like the Lenovo W five thirty, aka the Lenovo Saurus. Yeah, you know, <laughs> fully loaded with SSDs and thirty two gigs of RAM. You can get up to about five k for that. I think I could swing that. Yeah. You could put a Surface RT on every wall in your house and make a Skype intercom. Scratch that. <laughs> That's what I'm doing with, uh, with 5,000. <laughs> <laughs> Separate Skype account in each room. <laughs> That's so brilliant, Carl. I think I'm doing that. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Sometimes I have a good idea. There you go. Joe, Joe what's yeah, your five Joe, grand? Joe, what do you think? Uh, I've taken instructions from my seven-year-old, and he says, lots and lots of Lego Mindstorms. Ah, oh, oh. brilliant. 5000 bucks worth of Mindstorms. That's um, yeah. Skynet. That is the robot army. Yeah, I think that's what he's going to try and do, <laughs> is take over the world. <laughs> ah, I see. You've got an evil genius in the works right now. You could get a lot of Gadgeteer modules for five grand. That's true. Just saying. Yeah. Lots of programming and weird .NET platforms. We haven't done a robotics studio show in a while, and they use Mindstorms there. Probably time to revisit that one. I agree. Absolutely. All right. Should we talk product here? Like, are there, beyond TFS and Studio, are there tools we need to get to the point of really automating to deployment? Well, yes, Richard. We should talk about DevOps in a box. Boy, that sounded like a meatball, didn't it? (laughs) Did I meatball something? I didn't mean to. I just thought, you know, we didn't talk about products. Um, Well, because the company that Alex founded does do a deployment product, and I did some work on it and have used it before I went there and even after my contract was up. So it's called Buildmaster. And yes, the Google advertising is DevOps in a box. Nice. Which got a little snark on the run as radio. Well, but. yes, it did. Because, <laughs> you know, the product comes last. We talked culture and process the first half of this show. Yeah. But then it's like, okay, you know, we you can't just buy a tool and expect it to do its do the job. It's just, I have to feel the same way about Agile. I mean, how many times we've got people thinking like, Agile comes in a spray can, and I just <laughs> got to squirt it on you guys, and everything will be fine. Yeah. 
No, it is it is a tool. So you're trying to put it all in a box. So what does it do? Well, that that's a marketing tagline, uh, but it is a communication tool. It's what it's designed to do is standardize deployments and make it so that everyone has visibility into the deployment process, developers, the operations guys, and the business units as well. You could have this all in a wiki and still have scripts everywhere and everything else. And this is just a, a graphical representation of an entire deployment plan, especially because when you move beyond the deploy from Visual Studio straight to production, you want to balance multiple environments and have some way of moving a discrete set of functionality out of source control into an environment where you can integrate it with the other applications that it depends on, off to a testing environment, maybe to a staging environment, and then finally to production. To do that, you're going to want to use some sort of automation, and whether it's this tool, other tools, uh, PowerShell scripts, batch files, whatever, the more important point is it shouldn't just be a Word document sitting on someone's hard drive that they email around the next time they need a deployment and forget to put in the new features on it. Yeah, and I like this idea that, you know, full automation to the QA environment, which looks like the production environment. So you're already defeating a whole lot of problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I know from, from our perspective, uh, what, what we really strive to do was, was have something that may, you know, made it visible to all of the members involved. You know, th the difference I look at it is, you can just look at something, you know, you know, build automation. All right. That's something that will, we could call that continuous integration, right? It's inner, it's automating the process of doing a build. Then there's this deployment automation layer, which we could effectively do with a script, right? We could write a long PowerShell script or have a system that runs this PowerShell uh, script when we click a button. The parts that we're missing, though, are the process automation pieces. Say you have a button that says, okay, I can press this button and it will send my files to the QA server. Great. How are you going to now document the process of not only who clicks the button, but when they click it and when they should click it? And that's what I think this DevOps evolution is really starting to, to unfold into is understanding that it's not just about writing these scripts or doing this fancy, uh, cool, you know, cool scripting things. It's about understanding how we can build a process using software, of course, that ties together the different groups through approvals, through change controls, basically putting human intelligence into the process while reducing human error. And uh, Buildmaster free for five users? Yeah, yeah. Buildmaster is free for five users. And we have this model that maybe when you go look at it, it's a, it can be a little uh, intimidating at first, but it is, we have a sort of a la carte upgrade model, which I haven't seen a lot of software do, maybe because it's a little bit too much to take in. But instead of saying you have to go right into the enterprise edition, there's, there's a way where you can buy feature by feature. If you don't like the five users, you can buy a sixth user, you can buy a seventh, um, or really remove any of the limitations in the free version. But it reminds me here, TFS is a service too, that it's, you know, five users, you can, you have it for nothing. But once you get bigger than that, then we need to talk. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was something that we noticed was that there was this big gaps for, for not small teams, but like, you know, when you're at seven developers spending a few grand on software, it's not a big deal. I mean, when you look at the total uh, salary and all that stuff, but yeah, that's a lot to ask your boss for. What we're hoping with this sort of a la carte model is that it helps small teams be able to sort of gets these individual features that they need. And certainly not everyone needs every feature of, of anything. So we'll see how it works. We're, we're hoping it will help folks get uh, introduced to the platform a lot easier. Gradually pregnant. But you know what this reminds <laughs> me of before? It, <laughs> but that's what it is, right? We'll slowly get you pregnant. Yeah. Uh, I, 
do like the idea that, I mean, you could roll your own. Like, it reminds me of continuous integration in, like, 2005. Mm. You could do it. Studio 2005 could do it. You just had to write a bunch of stuff. You know, you had to sort of bailing wire and duct tape together yourself and you could make it happen. Today, it's a wizard. You know, it's just not that big a deal to get, uh, you know, fairways down the path. This feels to me like the same sort of thing. This is all those bits that you would normally glue together yourself, ready to go. Right, because back in the day, it was Nant and cruise controls, what I was using yes. for giving the ops guys, here's a secure website front end and has a button for each of the environments that you can deploy to and a big Nant script behind it. And but now It's very with- tough to write those scripts so that they're not brittle. Like, I, and I la- I'm laughing because you called it Buildmaster because I've actually been working at companies where we've been trying to lynch the Buildmaster. <laughs> oh, well, because the build master used to be the one guy who could actually get the build to work. And it's mm. so vulnerable, right? Like that guy gets hit by a bus kind of thing. So getting away from this, I want everybody to be able to do a build. Like it should be trivial to do a build. Mm-hmm. That's, that's our philosophy too. And, and not just a build, but a, you know, deployment as well. Everybody who's authorized, of course, devs should not be pushing to production unless no. they're uh, a privilege. But um, yeah, and it's the same thing. Of course, if the build master uh, software in this case goes away, then yeah, I mean, you're back to, to, to manual process. But um, yeah, it's true with any software, I suppose. Yeah. But I do like the, so the, in getting back to, you know, IT's fear here. So we're creating automation to get to a point where it's, once we do a check-in, you've got a running version. What about the testing part of this? So the the testing, I mean, I, I think that something that we see, and this is not necessarily product-specific, more process or technique-specific, is is a big push towards automated testing. I think automated testing is, is fantastic. It reduces a, a tremendous amount of risk. But not doing any human testing that introduces a, a whole new set of risks that we see. Right. So I think that having a, having the system to sort of uh, balance the manual and automated testing and sort of have those gate points, checkways, whatever you want to uh, call them, right, between each environment to say all of the testing has done, someone smoke tested this, mm-hmm. those sorts of pieces. I think that helps go a long way towards achieving testing. And just be having a little more confidence. But it, it makes sense to me that we land at QA, and QA is now the gate to the next stage. They decide through their additional tests and, and mm. checking themselves, okay, we're going to move forward. Do you see pre-production much anymore? What What is so, – so, I mean, okay, I'll tell you what I see a lot is a lot of words to mean different uh, things. What do you mean by pre-production? Well, back in the dot-com boom days, pre-production was the infrastructure that looked just like the production environment that let us do the load testing. Oh, sure. So, so staging environment. Right. Uh, it, well, that, that's what I call it, right? I mean, I've heard people call staging everything. But mm-hmm. basically this um, – yeah, so, so the way – and I, I wrote an article that uh, – that breaks out all this might be definitely worth linking to but mm-hmm. you know i broke down the the different types of testing and the pre-production or staging testing the purpose of this is to test your deployment to production it is an incredibly expensive test to do because you have to now have load balancing you have to have all these things i think that it's it's i see it every now and then but that's that's when it when it's called for. There's a time and place for doing a sort of staging testing because you know you can never mitigate too much risk. If if uh, well, I should step back and say you know you you can mitigate too much risk if the business thinks it's uh, worth it, right? But in this case, pre-production does mitigate a risk of deployment, even if you're automating it, even if it's a fully repeatable process, something could go wrong in a staging test. And it could be worth doing, but it's becoming less and less frequent, especially yeah. with virtualization. I mean, what's the difference between the QA environment and a pre-production environment anymore anyway? Um, one difference can be in some scenarios that I've worked on, is especially if you're hosting your systems in a cloud and say you're doing your development locally, your integration testing locally, but you're deploying to 
Azure, Amazon Web Services, App Harbor, any of the, the cloud providers, you want to do your QA work in a similar environment, but you don't want to spend the same amount of money in compute time as you are in your production environment. So you would push, you would deploy your QA builds out to a cloud environment that's scaled down from what your production environment is, but still um, similar in shape and that you have a load balancer as your front end and you're right. coming in, but you're only talking to two web servers instead of the usual 10 in your, in your scaling group. And when you say the QA environment may not have the load tester at all? No, I, I would recommend that the QA environment just be a scaled down version of the production right. environment. So you have a, a load balancer at the front end regardless. Yeah. And a smaller environment. I mean, it seems to me yeah. that we don't need that extra step anymore. We just make sure all of the tests that would have been run in either case get run. Right. But you can have a significant savings by minimizing that environment and then also by automating it so that there's only running machines when there's something that needs tested and they're not running, you know, they're deleted basically from your cloud service when you're not testing anything QA. So you're not paying for runtime that you don't need. Right. I mean, that's what's awesome about cloud in the first place is the pay by the hour or pay by the minute model. I used to own test servers when we weren't running mm -hmm. testing, you know, those machines were just sitting there. Right. And those were capital expenses. They were. And the crazier thing was then coming to me saying, you know, we need to go faster. We need more of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, being very resistant to the cost of all that gear, buying, buying a, another F5 load balancer to be able to do proper testing on it when they're 50 grand made people grumpy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, we had apps that broke because we did not test them with the same load balancer we were using in production. Mm hmm. And now you can just say, oh, give me another load balancer, and you pay by the traffic coming into it in the time that it's running. But that presumes that, I mean, can we only get the advantage of this? Is DevOps only for cloud people? Definitely no. not. You know, D DevOps is, when we really simplify it, DevOps is um, getting teams to collaborate and automating things. You don't need the things that you automate don't have to be spinning up and tearing down new servers. Right. A lot of the even web companies that I work with, they're you know they're they're huge names. Uh, we all know the websites. Uh, they don't use the cloud the way that you might think they do. They don't spin up a whole stack of new machines and tear them down. They just do deployments the way that any in-house organization with with uh, physical hardware would do. You don't need the cloud to do DevOps. You don't need infrastructure automation to do DevOps either. You need something to bring together the team so that the developers have a clue that when they're writing code, it's going to be load balanced in production and they'll have some insight into what it will look like once it's in production. Because yeah, sure, I mean, you do, I mean, just something simple. If you try to do in-proc sessions with um, multiple load, you know, multiple nodes, you're going to run into session problems. Right. Well, you know, I've, I'm getting in this mindset now of I want everybody involved in that app now to be working from a VM, including the developers. And that VM has a template that makes it consistent in configuration between production, QA, and dev so that you just can't do that anymore. You're not going to be surprised. Mm-hmm. Right, and some of the abstraction you get from a continuous integration environment gives you that where it'll build and make sure that there's not components only on the developer's machine and moving to uh, low-friction deployment option gives you that guarantee because a developer can easily go from, I committed my code to source control, I watched the build, now I can go and do a quick smoke test in an integration environment and make sure it works the same way it did on my machine. Cool. Yeah. Now, so yeah, how much time have we wasted just trying to figure out what the configuration differences were, you know, stuff that worked over there doesn't work over there. Like it just makes you crazy. Speaking of configuration, that brings me to another point I'd like to make about separating configuration from code. Uh, this is one of the things that I've always strived to do 
not just from a convenience standpoint for the operations guys, making sure that my applications were easily configurable for them through different config files. Right. But also for security. I hate, hate, hate seeing connection strings in configuration files in source control. Oh, yeah. Especially for production SQL servers, especially now with the cloud, which most cloud providers don't natively provide integrated authentication against the cloud databases. Right. So, so it's going to be username password, which does not belong in developers. You know, production connection strings don't belong in development source control. Yeah, they should know what they are. They should want to know what they are. Yeah, I never want to know because then if something happens to the database, you're liable. I could be one of the responsible ones. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Do you, do you not give me accounts that can access production servers because then it could be my fault? Yep, they'll come for you. And this is regulatory in a lot of cases as well. Yeah. If you're Sarbanes-Oxley, PCI, any of the oh. ISO standards, you as a developer can't know that or yeah. else there's horrible liability consequences. Yeah, when you take, you know, SOX is generally fairly <laughs> stupid, but the piece that makes a lot of sense is this separation of access. Mm -hmm. Just stop handing out admin accounts. Like, what are you doing? Exactly. And, <laughs> and I think that's a good place for this build master tool as well. Uh, it has this nice configuration management piece where configuration files can have and are specific for different environments, have access controls applied to them so that I as a developer can't see the configuration that the production system is going to have, but the production DBAs and ops guys can manage those configurations and they also have a history of their changes. Right. Automatically. So, but, and I love this idea then that dev is working on their set of instances with a different set of accounts. And it's very automated that you switch over to the other accounts when you move to the other environment. Right. And then the security natively is through Active Directory and Buildmaster. So it's not yet another identity silo that people have to manage for changing permissions for who can see what. You can do it with Active Directory groups really easily. Yeah. Well, because the reality is, we don't want to think about security, right? Like I want, I if I do not want it popping up in my face ever. I got other things to worry about, so it's got to be as transparent as possible. I think a lot of it comes back to this notion of process automation. I mean, the configuration files are, are a great example of that. So, who's let, let's say you write a deployment script, or you're using something that just executes a, a PowerShell script or something, right? Right. Um, how do you now deal with these configuration files that have the name, you know, these secure names and passwords? Is this a manual process that you're going to add on top of running a script? It, a lot of those considerations need to come in when you're thinking about doing this DevOps or this process automation. It's a heck of a lot more than just writing a script to deploy files or spin up a website or something like that. There's mm -hmm. a lot of other moving pieces. Security is probably the biggest one, I, I think. That's why you want to automate it. So you don't, you only have to think about it once. Figure this out once, never think mm -hmm. about it again. Absolutely. I like that. It's not just making it faster. It's getting it out of your head. That's, and I think that's what it is. I mean, you know, the, again, we as developers like to solve technical problems and non-business problems, but the reality is the solid developers, the ones who are, you know, delivering that value we were talking about earlier, need to understand that their job is not to be thinking about how do I manage all of these things time and time again, set it up once, make sure it's set up and then focus on solving actual business problems. Don't, don't try to reinvent your own tooling. Don't try to, um, you know, do all this yourself. There's plenty of ways to do it now. And it's really easy to do. You, you so know, not, not just that, don't own infrastructure. Don't worry about infrastructure. Absolutely. I mean, it's somebody needs to worry about it. That's why we have, you know, specializations. But I mean, if, if it's not something in you know, a developer's DevOps does not mean that developers now are the ones who are scripting servers. That's that's making the whole situation worse because that's even less time for them to focus on business problems. Right. So, yeah, unload your mind because actually that frees up time to think about other problems, harder problems. 
Uh, and and arguably more important problems to the business too. I mean, it, it's the systems that they have now, even if they're horribly inefficient uh, manual deployments, still work, just not as smoothly. And what you don't want is to break what's there by you know going in and and trying to you know just take ownership of of all of those internal processes. Right. So. Do you guys buy into this idea that we could speed up this deployment model? Actually, I mean, I'm thinking back to uh, all spas presentation: ten deploys a day. So, ten deploys a day is pretty easy because what you're really doing is just every time you save a file, you're putting it in production, and that's that's this notion of continuous deployment. And I have no issue with continuous deployment. The idea came from Lean Startup. Um, great book, definitely yeah. worth reading. But, you know, the whole thing is that you can do 10, 50, 100 deploys a day. You're just going to have bugs. You can't escape that. I don't care how many automated tests you have. Your tests are going to have bugs. Your test tests are going to have bugs too. So if you can accept bugs in production, deploy as often as you want. There's, there's no problem with it. But until that happens, someone's going to need to validate one. The code integrates. That's where your automated testing comes in. The code, the, the code does what it's supposed to do. Well, that's you could try to automate that. But one thing you'll never be able to automate is acceptance testing. You don't get to go to the user and say, "All right, I took your specs, I wrote code, and then I automated your acceptance of it. So it's deployed, and we're good. I'm done. <laughs> Pay me now. <laughs> right, it's time to go." Uh, well, I guess that begs the question is, you know, how do we get our IT folks willing to accept bugs in production? Although, what that's well, ridiculous, actually. They've always had them. Exactly. We've that's just ignored it. I, I think that's wow. developers not communicating or, you know, maybe not the developers, but the development organization not communicating well enough to the stakeholders and business. A, a lot of times it's perfectly fine. I, I would rather have software that has a few edge case bugs but a ton of features then software with two features and no bugs right you can work around bugs and as long as you can fix bugs that's important and that's just something you sell to the business i mean when you talk about 10 deploys a day that also means you can fix a bug pretty quickly absolutely and Depending on the software you're writing, uh, you know, you, you go back to the original sort of idea of continuous deployment. If you've seen it, it's Imview. It is just sort of a 3D avatar dress up chat that I, I guess teenagers or, or whoever use. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I would expect them to already have 20 other spyware apps on their computers that are causing it to crash. If Imview crashes, it's not a big deal. They'll fix it. They'll fix it fast. What I don't want is continuous delivery, or I'm sorry, continuous deployment on, say, uh, airplane engine software. I don't want to be on the one bad deploy where they're trying to land in the middle right. and they have a bug. Or my payroll processing software. So not everything can be continuously deployed like this. Like you, there, You've got to sort of assess criticality. I think everything can be. It's whether it should or should not be. Right. Regardless lowering the friction and the amount of effort required for a deployment is enormously beneficial regardless of whether you're deploying 10 times a day, once a week, once every two weeks, or once every six months. Absolutely. Well, guys, I think that's a show. It's been great talking to you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been, been a lot of fun. I appreciate you, you having, uh, having me on. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. We'll be checking out the uh, the daily WTF for sure on a regular basis. <laughs> All right, guys. We'll see you later. Thanks for listening. See you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com.
Franklinsnet.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.